Over the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about John the Baptist and some of the things that, that John accomplished as the forerunner of Christ. And I thought about that word a little bit as I thought about our devotion for tonight, wondering if we really fully comprehend always that idea of what a forerunner is. And so I thought about, well, what kind of things in our world become forerunners of other things? And maybe one of the better examples I could come up with was the idea of the computer. So in the upper left-hand corner, that's about how computers started. They sometimes took up an entire room or even more and had less power than the thing that you hold in your hand today. I'm not sure that the people who created invented the first computers could have ever envisioned where that technology was going. If you were a little older like me, you might even remember, or maybe you've seen them, those early desktop computers, the Macintosh computers, really clunky and heavy, not very fast, a little bit frustrating to use. And again, the people who had those invented, created, probably thought, look how far we've come since those old days of entire rooms being taken up by computers. And now, today, in your hand every single day is a computer that has more capability, more power, more ability to do things that people could never have imagined were going to be done. Those early computers were forerunners to what you and I enjoy today, but I'm not sure they even recognized how far technology was truly going to be taken. That's not the case with John the Baptist. He knew what his job was. He knew what it meant to be the forerunner of Christ. And today, as we take a look at Matthew's words in Matthew chapter 3, we'll see how that idea of John as the forerunner was foretold in the scriptures. Listen to these words from Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for on the basis of those words today from Matthew chapter 3, let's talk about John the Baptist as the one who fulfilled prophecy. And as he fulfilled prophecy, he did so by preparing people's hearts. And then secondly, by pointing to the kingdom that was coming when Jesus arrived on the scene. In Matthew's gospel, we're not told anything about John's early days. You have to go to the Gospel of Luke to understand exactly how John was born. And you might remember some of the story of John the Baptist's birth. It was an amazing birth because God gave two elderly parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were infertile, had no capability of having children, a very special blessing of a son late in their lives. That son was John. Isn't it kind of amazing as you think throughout Scripture how many births of special children were brought about in ways that only God could actually do. And that was the case with John the Baptist as well. But in Matthew's gospel, John just sort of abruptly arrives on the scene and preaches in the wilderness. And as John is preaching in the wilderness, there are things that drew people's attention to him. Both his message and his appearance brought people out to see what John was talking about. I don't know how to fix my microphone from doing that, sorry. 
The message that John proclaimed certainly got people's attention, but his appearance did as well. In the very next verse of our text, in chapter 3, verse 4, we're told that John dressed in a unique way with clothes made of camel's hair and a leather belt, and and he ate a, a, a strange diet, locusts and wild honey. And maybe some people went out to see John just to see what this guy was all about. But his message drew people's attention too. And his message was a message of repentance. You heard it in Matthew's text. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. I want to talk to you just briefly about that word repent. Because sometimes we define that word repent in a very narrow sense. And it's certainly part of what repentance is, that idea of being sorry for our sins, contrition, having sorrow for the things that we've done wrong. And and, and certainly John is including that part of things when he has a message to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. But in the wider sense, repentance involves even more. That repentance in the wider sense is ultimately faith. It's trust in the one who can undo the damage that sin causes. It's trust in a Savior who is the one who forgives our sins. And because repentance involves that miracle of faith, it has to be God's work. It cannot be our own work. It can't be something that we can do apart from the strength that we receive from the Holy Spirit and from the Word of God. John gives us the why, why we should repent. He says, for the kingdom of God is near. The Bible uses that expression, kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, throughout the Gospels. And and again, it's probably something that we think of when we hear the word kingdom of, of something that happens as a location, a place. But the Bible isn't so much concerned about the kingdom of God being a place as it is an activity. Jesus once said this, the kingdom of God is within you. That's what The activity is, it's a rule. It's God's rule in the hearts of his people by faith. That's the whole reason Jesus was coming into this world. To be that ruler of people's hearts, to be the savior from sin, the Messiah that was so long promised. To prepare people for that coming, God sent a forerunner, John the Baptist, who pointed people to the coming of the kingdom and told them to prepare their hearts. Maybe you heard it in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 3, how clearly Matthew says that John's appearance is the fulfillment of Scripture. The passage that Matthew quotes comes from Isaiah chapter 40 and just reminds us that there was going to be one who was going to make the paths straight and prepare the way for the Lord. Matthew's gospel is pretty amazing when it comes to the fulfillment of Old Testament Scriptures. Depending on how you count exactly how many times Matthew does it. Some estimate that over 60 times Matthew says that events surrounding the life of Jesus are fulfillment of Old Testament passages. Why does he do that? Why does he take us back to the Old Testament so many times and say this Jesus and the things that happened around Jesus' life were the fulfillment of scriptures? Could it be that Matthew wants you and me and all people who read his gospel to see That this is God's plan? That God who said these things were going to happen hundreds of years before they happened was now bringing them to fruition as he fulfilled the promises that were made? Maybe there's a second purpose to to John's work and Matthew pointing out the fact that John is the fulfillment of Scripture. 
And that is that people certainly were expecting a Messiah. The people in Jesus' day wanted someone to come and overthrow the Roman rule. They were looking for an earthly savior, and that's what they expected. So John has to undo their thinking a little bit and teach them that what they were expecting wasn't what was going to happen, that actually what was coming was unexpected because what was coming was a savior from sin, not from the Roman rule. Maybe that explains a little bit why John spoke so harshly. If you know a little bit more of what John said, Luke's gospel records it as well, he actually calls the people that come out to see him a brood of vipers. Can you imagine if that happened in church today? You showed up and the pastor began insulting you as you were sitting in the pews, telling you that you weren't worth anything, you were like a bunch of poisonous snakes. So how can we understand why John spoke so harshly? It has to do, doesn't it, with what people were expecting. They weren't expecting a savior from sin. And so John had to give them a wake-up call to make them look inside of themselves, to look at their hearts, to see that their hearts were not prepared for a coming savior. That's why John's message resonates still today. Because it's important for us to do the same thing, to look into our hearts, to look at whether we're prepared for the coming of Jesus. So maybe we can just ask ourselves that question tonight. What are we expecting in the next couple of weeks as we approach a Christmas celebration? And certainly there's some good things that you're expecting, right? You're expecting to be able to go home and get a break from school and studying for a little while, maybe catch up on some sleep, maybe have some of your favorite Christmas goodies waiting for you, or maybe take part in baking some of those things exchanging gifts with people that you care about and love. And those are all great things. But don't lose sight. Don't lose sight of what God really accomplished that first Christmas. That what he accomplished was sending you and me exactly what we needed. You see, like John's message to the people in the wilderness, we need to hear that message too. Repent. We want what Repent means a change of our hearts, a change of our minds as we see the grace of God in action. And repentance starts with feeling some discomfort. And this is the discomfort that repentance brings about. The idea that we don't measure up to God's holy demands. We all fall short of the glory of God. We can't love God with our heart, soul, and mind. We can't love our neighbor as ourselves. And God doesn't want us to experience that discomfort to despair, but to drive us right back to the cross, right back to the Savior who came, right back to God's work that was accomplished through Jesus. You see, God sent a Savior from sin. He sent a king, a king who was willing in love for you and me to go all the way to a cross so that you and I have hearts that are prepared for him to come again prepared through the miracle of faith that God has worked in each one of us. Jesus came to save. That was his purpose in coming to this earth, to win you back to God, to make you God's own son or daughter and an heir of eternal life. God wants us to rejoice. 
Rejoice in the baby in the manger because that baby in the manger grew up to be the savior from sin that we need. And when we recognize God's love for us again, that drives us back to the cross where we put our sins, where Jesus already paid for them all. And in the joy of of our forgiveness, we have expectation too, that when Jesus comes again, our hearts are ready, ready through the miracle of faith that God has accomplished in each one of us. Just a couple things for you to take home with you tonight. Number one, God has prepared our hearts for Jesus through the miracle of faith. Peter says it this way in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That gift of the Holy Spirit is faith. And number two. We expect the coming of the kingdom of God and rejoice that Jesus came to save us. To the Philippians, the Apostle Paul wrote this, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, our Lord Jesus Christ. I looked it up yesterday. I couldn't believe it. It's almost been three months since Queen Elizabeth II passed away. Can you believe that? Time is relentless, isn't it? And yet three months ago when that happened and her son Charles III now took over as king, did you find it kind of amazing the massive amount of coverage there was for the royalty in one country in Great Britain? It's kind of amazing how enthralled people are with kings and queens and how much even though what happens in the monarchy in England doesn't make much of a difference to our daily lives, people are still drawn to that. I think there's a lesson for us in that, the fascination that people have with royalty, because we are children of a king. Sons and daughters, heirs of the royalty that Jesus brought to this earth as our king, defeating sin and Satan in our place, and giving us the gift of eternal life. We can be kingdom-minded like John, knowing that the kingdom of heaven is near because Jesus is ruling our hearts. That's what John came to teach as the forerunner, to prepare hearts for the coming of Jesus. And through the gift of faith that God has given you, your hearts are prepared for Jesus, not just to come at Christmas, but to come again to take us to be with him forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the sacrifice that you were willing to make. That You came to this earth to take our place and suffer and die on a cross to win for us the forgiveness of sins. We now ask you to prepare our hearts. Prepare our hearts for a celebration of your birth again, recognizing that that birth means that we have exactly what your name means, a savior from sin but recognizing also that through the the grace that you have showered on us in our lives, we are prepared for your coming again. We pray that you fill our hearts with joy and gladness, even through the ups and downs of life in this world. Teach us, Lord, to be ready for that last day and give us confidence in your love. Lead us back to the cross again and again in repentance, not just sorrow for sin, but also the trust in you as the one who forgives sin and guide us to our eternal home. We pray in the last couple of weeks of the school year that that you strengthen our students, that you allow them to cast their anxiety on you, knowing that you care for them. 
Continue to bless them in all that they do in their labors in this life as they look ahead to the joy of life with you forever. We pray all these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.